Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Turn with me in your Bibles to the 8th Psalm, Psalm number 8. Let me read for you, and I hope you will follow the text and keep your Bible open during the course of our hour together. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, you who set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is the human? What is man? What is man or woman? What is one of us that you are mindful of him or her? And the son of man that you visit him. For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. I don't know whether I'm like other preachers or not, but there are certain passages of Scripture that over the years I have carefully stayed away from. And one of the reasons that I've stayed away from some of those passages is because I've never felt adequate to deal with them. When you look at them, there is a magnificence to them and there is a greatness to them that you think, uh, I don't have the resources or the capacity to deal adequately with that. So I do not think since I was 21 years of age I've ever preached on the 23rd Psalm. <laughs> and I've stayed very carefully away from some other passages. And this Psalm is one of the ones I've stayed away from. But one of the things I'm reminded of every day by the calendar on the wall is that I'm getting toward the end of the road. And if I'm ever going to look at these priceless passages, I better get at it. So you are going to get either the benefit or the burden of uh, my own personal spiritual journey and pilgrimage because I want to look at two or three psalms in our time together. And they are incredible pieces of literature. I do not know how to describe for you my feeling about them. Any dealing that we ever deal with will be like a child's response to a massive theological problem. Now, uh, this is an incredible psalm. If you will look at it, you will notice, if you will check its use in the, in the Scripture, you will find that it is quoted three times in the New Testament. You will remember immediately the verse, Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, he has perfected praise. You will remember that that was used by Jesus when he referred to the children singing his praises on Palm Sunday when he came triumphantly into the city. 
you will remember that Paul, when he is dealing with the resurrection and dealing with the resurrection of Christ and the lordship of Christ, takes a line from this psalm and he says, you have put all things under his feet. So it speaks of the sovereignty of our Lord Jesus. You will remember that in the book of Hebrews in the second chapter, four verses four, five, and six are quoted where the writer of the book of Hebrews is showing the superiority of Jesus to the angels and to any other spiritual creature, that he is above them all, that he is the eternal Son of God. Now, I wish we had time and we're in small enough groups that I could tease you, but what fascinates me is that every one of those references is messianic. Every one of those references is about Christ. But the fact of the matter is the psalm is not about Christ. The psalm is about you and me. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him? Now there's a beauty about the ambiguity of that expression son of man because when you come to the New Testament, that's Jesus' favorite term for himself. But I do not think for a minute when he calls himself the son of man, he's talking about his deity. He is talking about what he shares with you and me as a human person, a human individual. And so the psalm is about us. But when you come to the New Testament, the three references, the psalm is used to speak of him. Now, I hope before we get through, I can get back to that because that is one of the most priceless insights that has ever come to me and one of the most priceless intellectual explosions of how intimately the creation of man is related to the incarnation and how intimately God's purposes for us are tied up with his purposes and his intent for himself. God and man belong together. Now, you will notice it's a very simple hymn. All you have to do is read it, and you can read it through very quickly, and your reaction is beautiful. There is a, there's a charm about it that if you don't watch, you will miss the incredible theology that is here, the incredible redemptive truth. Now, you will notice how he begins. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Now, immediately he's talking about God, the God whom he knows. And the God whom he knows, he knows him by personal name. I wish I had time to deal with that. It's the kind of thing that happened to uh, Charles Wesley after he was converted. God moved out of the abstract into the personal, and he said, if I had a thousand tongues, I couldn't tell you what it means to have the kind of intimacy with him that I have now. I know him by his personal name. I don't have to say, Mr. God, I can say Jesus. Now, the word which is behind the word our Lord, the first Lord here, is the Old Testament equivalent of Jesus. And what you have is an ancient Hebrew who has come into very intimate personal relationship with the living God. He knows him, and he knows that he belongs to him, but more than that, he knows that God belongs to him. Now, he says, O Lord, our Lord. Lord expresses his sovereignty. The second one, that's the word Hebrew word Adon, and it is rightly translated, Lord, the one who's in charge of everything. So he says, I know the one who's in charge of the whole shooting match. I know him by personal name. I can call him by personal name. 
He belongs to me and I belong to him. Now, he's, if you will read, you will notice something, two interesting things about the psalm. I hope I can make this uh, come alive to you. It, it, it burns very much within me. The first thing is there's a universalism in the psalm. Now, let me explain what I mean. Many of the psalms are very particularistic. If you will read the 51st Psalm, you know that it was a man who had committed sin, was under great guilt, and was looking for personal relief from that guilt. And whether you're like the scholars and don't know who wrote it, or whether you like some of the rest of us and think it's David, nevertheless, there it is. You've got an individual who's got a personal name and he's got a personal problem, and he's talking very existentially about himself. There's not a line of this in this psalm. It is the kind of psalm that any person in the world at any stage of the game can sing and lift as an, an expression of praise. Notice there is no reference to Israel. Do you know how many of the psalms refer to Israel? There is no reference to Jerusalem. There is no reference to Zion. There is no reference to the law. There is no reference to the temple. And there is no reference to sacrifice. The thing could have been written as if nothing ever got past, Genesis 1 and 2, <laughs> except for one line in it. There is one line that shows that it was written after Adam and Eve got out, were kicked out of the garden. Now, what you have is this universal note in which the psalmist is speaking about the one God and all that exists, all creation. Now, how does a man in that day have this kind of universal outlook? He, he didn't have a TV set. He didn't uh, have a radio. He didn't, uh, couldn't read Time magazine or Newsweek or U.S. News and World Report. He couldn't read the New York Times. He uh, did not have a personal library available to him anywhere. It could be this thing was written by a shepherd taking care of his sheep. I thought about this last night when Ron was talking about how narrow that place is between the two altars, how small it is. Uh, the guy who wrote this could have been a shepherd, or maybe he was a king. He may have been David, but do you know what David's problem was? It was a nation. And you read the Psalms of David, and there's normally that national note. But here is a guy who is talking about, it's as if he knows more about the creation than those guys who just came back from space. Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, you who set your glory beyond where man has ever been, even in, even in our day. It is uh, about this transcendent God who made it all, the whole creation. He broke out, now hear me if you can, of his particularities. He was no longer a Republican or a Democrat. He was no longer a Methodist or an Episcopalian. He was no longer an American, a Zairean. He was a human being in the face of the sovereign God. And he had a concept of the whole, the all. He knew the one who made it all 
so he had to be interested in it all. Now, I don't know what you do with that, but I find myself saying, missions is not a tack-on in the gospel. If you ever meet the God who is God, and if you ever meet his Son who is the Son, you can no longer think in terms of your own particularities. You've got to break out because he is the one who's responsible for the whole, and he becomes the biggest factor in your life. Now, he's not unique. I think it always happens. Do you remember 200 years ago, 230 years ago, a fellow whose father was a weaver? Poor, uneducated. When he was 16, he had to help the family, so he was apprenticed to a cobbler and worked on shoes all the time. Said it his last, but you know what he did? When he was in his early teens, he met God, met Christ. So that little shoe fella, apprentice, working on shoes, somewhere near Northampton, England, because he had met God, began to say, the world's bigger than my world. And it's God's world. And he cared enough about it to give his son, I've got to care. So he went and took a little of his money and bought a world map. Can you imagine what a world map looked like at that stage of the game? And he pinned it up on the wall in front of his last, where as he worked on shoes, he looked at the world. I want to say that's the kind of thing that happened to this psalmist, whoever he was, and that's the kind of thing that ought to happen to me and ought to happen to you if we meet the God who's God of it all. You will remember that uh, he was married before he was 20 years of age. How much do you expect out of a shoe cobbler's apprentice? The normal apprentice would spend his days in the town he lived in and spend the rest of his life mending shoes or making shoes. But God began to burn in his heart, and he read his Bible, and he read Captain Cook's journal. And he said, there's a world out there, and there are people who don't know the God that I know. And if they don't know the God that I know, I've got an obligation. And a guy who was uneducated, if you will read the story, he wrote a little book that had 85 pages in it called an inquiry into the obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathen. And that was shocking in his world because all the people that were around him were simply concerned about their own community and their own particulars. That little book is in the same category in terms of influence on Christian history as Luther's 95 Theses. Martin Luther was a Ph.D., a university professor. Now you've got a shoe cobbler and an apprentice at that. And he writes an 85-page book and changes the course of history. Because, you see, he went to India, and he ended up translating the Bible into Bengali, Sanskrit, Marathi, and with two of his friends, they did six full translations of the Bible, 23 of the New Testament, portions of the Bible in 37 languages, and the world is different because of William Care. Now, that's the kind of thing that you've got in this psalm. He met God, and immediately he's, he's thinking beyond his world. I want to know if you're thinking beyond your world, your little world. 
That's the thing that's important about Christian colleges, where chapel after chapel after chapel, you can say the world is bigger than what your business management major prepares you for. You can say the world is bigger than what your English literature major prepares you for. God died for something bigger than that. And it's no accident that when that note is keep being sounded, kids scatter across the world because they belong to God. And it's God's world. The world is His. And if you care about Him, you care about what He cares about. And if He gave His Son to die for it, you're going to want to give something for it. Okay. Now, another story that fits in with that, which I like, is... Uh, his father was a gardener who worked for a rich man. He, uh, everybody else, all the other kids in his family died, so he was an only child. Before he was 12 years of age, he dropped out of school. Why go to school? He didn't enjoy it. And there were other things to do, and his family was poor, and he could contribute. So at 12, by then, he had become an apprentice. We do not even know what craft he was in. But... Uh, when he was in his early teens, he was, his word was, awakened. You know, I've decided that's a better term than converted. <laughs> I've gotten to where I like that term. He was awakened. Now, to what was he awakened? He was awakened to realities, ultimate realities. He was awakened to God, and he slowly became awake to all that God is awake to or at least some of what God is awake to. And as he did, when he was, he became, first of all, an earnest Christian seeker. Then he became an exhorter. And then he became an itinerant preacher in England. And he went to an annual conference, and John Wesley said, there are some people across the sea that are in desperate need of the gospel of Christ in 13 colonies west of us. Well, is there anybody here who will volunteer to go? And so at 26 years of age, with very little education, he said, I'll go. He didn't have any money and owned nothing, so some of his friends brought, bought two blankets for him. And he took those two blankets and they bought passage to New York for him. And so he got on the boat, and his bed were those two blankets. And he talked about the fact the boards didn't give when he lay on them. And then they went through a storm, and he became very seasick. He said it was the worst sickness he'd ever known. But as he faced New York, and, or faced New York and the New World, he wrote in his journal, I will set down a few things that lie on my mind. Whither am I going to the new world? What to do? To gain honor? No, if I know my own heart. To get money? No, I am going to live to God and to bring others so to do. Now, this guy was born 250 years ago next month. Do you know what he did? The next two years, he traveled around Baltimore and New York. And then do you know what he said? There's a continent out there. And he got on board his horse, 
He never again had a street address, a house, an apartment, a room, or a home. He slept away from home every night for 44 years and did more to shape the religious character of America than any other human being. And when he died, he was recognized on facial recognizance by more Americans than anybody else. And you know what his typical congregation was? 13 to 27 people. That's interesting when we talk about our mega churches today, isn't it? <laughs> Wherever there were human beings, he rode through this country. Crossed, I don't know how many times he crossed the Kentucky River on horseback. Up and down these mountains and sick a good chunk of the time. But you know what happened? He'd been awakened. God's world was out there. And if there were human beings there, they had to know. And so his world became a different world. Now, when you and I meet God, something universal ought to come into our experience. Where we quit thinking of the particulars of Dennis Kinlaw and get set free from the, from the bondage of particularities that involve us and we become a part of something bigger than what we are and we give ourselves totally to it. Now, there's an ideal character as well as a universal character in this psalm. <clears throat> so let me talk just a moment about that. As I said, it's like Genesis 1 and 2. There's only one reference in it to evil and to enemies and no reference to sin or to anything religious. If you read the Psalms, you'll, be, you'll find out how many of the Psalms find the psalmist talking about his enemies and his own problem. Or you will find him talking about sin and the need for forgiveness. But this guy has broken out of that world. You'll notice in the first verse, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, you who set your glory above the heavens. He knew enough to know that the heavens were created and God was the one who had created and transcended it all. And he's met him. So now he's thinking in terms of the eternal purposes of God, the one who can set all things under the person's feet whom he desires to do. And the beautiful thing about becoming a Christian is we get extricated from our own personal point of view and we get a transcendent and a universal perspective. Now, when we begin to look at the world from his point of view instead of ours, it's amazing how different the value system is. Now, I wish I had better language to use than that, but I'm not real good with language. But uh, And our, our conversations, our dialogue today is so involved with values. I just want to simply say, when you meet God, you're not interested in values, you're interested in what he values, his values. Now, what difference does it make? I love the way the psalm begins because nobody would have ever begun it this way after he speaks about the glory of God. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Now, uh, Have you ever thought about how much of the Bible is about babies? That's the main thing in the book of Genesis. 
The world is in trouble. Man's out of the garden. He's lost. Needs to be redeemed. God comes along and says to Abraham, you're going to have a baby. And the hope of the world is in a baby. So you get the story of Isaac. And it's interesting, his name meant he laughs. And the he and he laughs was not Abraham. It was God. It was Yahweh rejoicing because the way to redeem the world is, is in place. And it involves a baby and his babies and subsequent babies. You will remember that uh, you've got the same thing with uh, Isaac and Rachel and the concern for uh, or Rebecca, and the concern for a baby. But then you get the, a big story in the beginning of Exodus. You got these slave people. There's no question where the power is in the world. The power is in the Pharaoh and in his throne. And there's some slaves down here. And a baby is born. Now it's interesting that that uh, Pharaoh, with all of his power, greatest army in the world, had a fear of babies, Hebrew babies. It's interesting, the text says, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, he has perfected power, strength. When the Jews translated it in the Septuagint, they thought that can't be right, so they said, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, he's perfected praise. But the Hebrew word is the word for power, oz, the word for strength. It is an attribute of Yahweh, God, the Creator, the Sovereign Lord. It's interesting, uh, a baby who's a fearful object. You remember they hit him in the bulrushes, and you remember how Moses was saved. And you can't get his children off, name off, names off the front page of the New York Times today. You can't even tell me who the Pharaoh was. Read the story of Samuel, beginning of the kings. And then it's the story of a baby. You get to chapter, he was the hope of Israel. They needed a hope. You get to chapter 7 of Isaiah, and God says, the prophet says to the king, ask for a sign. I said, I won't be that presumptuous. And the prophet says, God will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a child, and his name will be Emmanuel. Now, you know, you and I can say that's a prophecy of Jesus. You'll hardly find an Old Testament scholar in the world that'll say that, major Old Testament scholar, because it was a prophecy of a baby, but let me say it's interesting how Psalm 8, I don't think it's, mess it's not messianic, but the New Testament uses it that way. Because God and babies belong together. And every baby comes from him. Look at the New Testament. The story of the birth of John the Baptist. How much space is devoted to it. And then the story of the birth of Jesus. And how much space is devoted to it. But let me wind up. Would you remember the passage in the book of Revelation? Where there is a woman who's clothed with a son. And she is pregnant. And she is entering into her labor. Can you find anyone more helpless than a woman in labor? And a great red dragon appears. 
And his purpose, we are told, he stood and waited for the baby to appear. Because that great red dragon knew that the desolation of hell lay in the hands of that baby that was about to be born. I wish I knew how to say this the way it ought to be said. The answer to every problem in the world lies in a baby somewhere. And I've decided that God sort of lumps them all together. Lumps them together enough that you think he's talking about a, one here, and next thing you know, he's talking about Jesus. The answer to our, to our problem lies in human persons. It's amazing the power that is in, involved in one single individual life, isn't it? I uh, ran across, uh, story, heard a story yesterday, day before, National Public Radio. <clears throat> it was interesting. I think it was this week. The Library of Congress announced that it had acquired all of the works of Gordon Park. I didn't know who Gordon Parks was until they told me, and then I remembered some of his work. You've seen some of his work, whether you remember it or not. When Gordon Parks was born in a home in which there was no bathroom, the doctor who delivered him said he's dead. So he wrapped him in a sheet and set him aside for burial while he finished caring for the mother. He had a young doctor with him, and the young doctor said, could I work on the baby? And the doctor said, do what you please, you can't hurt him. So he sent the children to get some ice, and he got a pan and put, filled it with water and ice and got it good and cold and dunked the so-called dead baby in that pan of ice water. And Gordon Parks screamed. And Gordon Parks went on to say, I've been screaming ever since. <laughs> An artist, one of the greatest photographers in the history of photography, a filmmaker, a producer, the guy that produced the film Shaft, an incredible voice, for blacks in this country. Because you see, Gordon Parks was a black baby. Library of Congress this week announced with pride it had secured all of his work. Nobody knows what's in a single baby. Now what interests me is that uh, the two people I mentioned earlier, Francis Asbury and William Carey, both were converted or awakened when they were in their teens. Now, I want to say something to you. Over the years, I've come to believe that the most important years in any person's life lie in the decade between 4 and 14 or 5 and 15, somewhere in there. That a person, a human person, is capable of dreaming then greater than he'll ever be able to dream again. 
And you can count on it that God's purposes for any individual life are bigger than the wildest dreams any of us ever had. He's not in small business. But you see, it takes a meeting with God to break a person out of his self-centeredness and his particularity to where he can dream of the great purposes of God. And when God comes into a person's life, I don't care if he's a black kid like Gordon Parks or if he's a, a poor gardener's son like Francis Asbury or a weaver's son like William Carey, when God comes into your heart, you know that you're important. And you know that God didn't put you here for small business. God put you here for things of eternal significance. And when you get older, you're beaten down enough and scarred enough, you say, oh, I can't count. But the child can dream. And the psalm says, out of the mouths of babes and suckling. Now, I love the term suckling. Do you know anything any weaker or any more fragile than a babe suckling at his mother's breast? But the psalmist says, you take the God that I worship and you hook him to one of these babes and the whole world may be influenced by that kind of thing. Now, he says, there's an interesting implication in the Septuagintal translation of this. I took issue with the way the Septuagint translated uh, the O's of the power out of the mouths of babes and sucklings. He has perfected, as they said, praise. But it's interesting that the Septuagint, listen to this and see if, you, if I can make it clear. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, you have ordained strength. Why? Because of your enemies, that you may, my translation says, silence the enemy and the avenger. It's interesting, the Greek, the verb is kataluo, which uh, has the concept of bring to an end, and is used in classical Greek of a war being brought to an end. Now, I want to ask you, is there implicit within that verse the promise of the babe in Revelation 12 and the babe in Luke? Because it's through a babe that the conflict is going to be brought to an end. Emmanuel, God, with us. Now, if that's so, how important is a human individual? Let me, uh, no, let me cite here what the psalm says. He says, when I consider your heavens, the creation, the work of your fingers, you made it all, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, they run according to your word. What are we, human beings, that you are mindful of us and an ordinary human being, the son of man, that you visit him? It's interesting the two verbs that are used there. What are... What is man that you are mindful of him? But before I speak of the two verbs, let me speak of the word for man. There are three primary words in the Old Testament for man. 
There's the word Adam, Adam, which speaks of us all generically, mankind. There is the Hebrew word Ish, which speaks of the individual, John Jones or Dennis Kenlaw or Ernest Stewart, whoever you may be. But there is another word, Enosh. And the word Enosh is a word for man, mankind, for human beings in their fragility, in their weakness, in their transience, in their impotence. Because you stand against the universe, and what chance have you got? You feel your weakness. You talk to anybody who's been in the middle of a tornado. Now, that's a kind of implication, context for the word. What is man, a nose, weak, transient, fragile? You will remember that uh, I love the line from Pascal where Pascal said that man is a thinking reed. He called us reeds because we're so fragile you can break us so easily. And when we're broken, it's so blooming hard to repair us. He said, but he's a thinking reed. And there is something in him that if the whole universe were to gang up on him and destroy him, he'd be greater than the whole universe because he at least would know he was being destroyed. Now that's part of the image of God that's within us. What is man that you're mindful of him? This weak creature. And you know, we pass so easily from the same. The memory, so short. He says, well, God visits him. God remembers him, and God visits him. Now, uh, you'll uh, stick with me for a moment while I talk about two Hebrew verbs. Let me tell you the way the word remember or be mindful of is used in the Bible, in the Old Testament. The first, the Hebrew word to remember is the Hebrew word zakar. The first occurrence is in Genesis 8.1. Noah is in the boat with all the animals. Been there a long time now. <laughs> He's wondering what the end's going to be, and there's water everywhere, and it doesn't seem to be receding a whit. And the text says, And God remembered Noah and sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now that gives you a clue as to the way that word is used in the rest of the Bible. When God remembers, circumstances change dramatically. Let me give you another one. The ninth chapter. Now the earth is dry, or at least almost, and Noah is out of the ark, and God is talking to him. And Noah said, do I have to live in torment every time it rains? Every time a cloud comes up, do I have to live in mortal fear? And God says, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. So when you see a rainbow, 
What is man that you remember him? Okay. Chapter 19 of Genesis. God has just told Abraham that he's going down to look at Sodom and Gomorrah, and if it's as bad as they, he's been told, he's going to have to wipe the whole shooting match out. And Abe says, I got a nephew down there and his family. Verse 29 of chapter 19, And when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought out Lot from the, city, from the catastrophe, and Lot lived. I want him to remember me. And that's the kind of God he is. He remembers. Chapter 30, 22. You know that in that day a woman was a complete failure unless she could give birth to a son. And Rachel was barren. One of these baby stories again. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And Rachel said, God has taken away my disgrace. And she named him Joseph. Yahweh will add. Now, uh, we could keep going. There are other passages. But you see the kind of thing that I'm getting at. But I must mention the beginning of Exodus. 2.24 The Israelites are in Egypt in slavery. They cry out to God for help. God heard this groaning. And the text says, And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites, was concerned about them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him, and Israel was redeemed because Yahweh remembered Israel. Now, uh, what is man that he's mindful of us, that he remembers us? He cares about us. He doesn't want to destroy us. He wants to redeem us. He's looking for every way he can get to redeem us. Now, what about the visit part? What is man that you remember him and the son of man, the ordinary human being, that you visit him? Do you know what this text is saying? The eternal God visits his people. Now, let me give you some instances of God visiting people in the book of Genesis. Now, the Lord, the NIV covers it up. The NIV says, the Lord was gracious to Sarah. As he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised, she became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. But the Hebrew says, and Yahweh visited Sarah. Or you get chapter, let's see, chapter 50, end of Genesis, and Joseph says to his brothers, I am about to die. God visiting will visit. NIV says, come to your aid. I don't know about you, but I like the visit part. <laughs> the Jewish Publication Society, though, says he will surely remember. Did you catch that? Jewish Publication Society translates Zakar and Pakad the same way. Because to remember is to be visited, and to be visited is to be remembered.
And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God, Pakod, Pakadi, or, or Pakad, surely will come to your aid. Surely, that's the NIV, but the Greek, but the Hebrew really says, but God visiting Yifkod will visit you. And when he visits you, everything is different. Let me go to Exodus and with it come through on these. Chapter 3, the burning bush. God tells Moses to go speak to Israel. He says, go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, the NIV says, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. But the Hebrew is, pakod, pakadti, visiting, I have visited you. And I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. Jewish Publication Society says, I have surely remembered you and seen what has been done to you. Now, I could, I could pull out some more like that. But do you notice that in every one of these references, when God remembers or when God visits, you know what happens? Resources beyond the natural are brought to bear upon the circumstances of the person whom God remembers and God visits. It's as if heaven opens up and its resources are dropped right down into your situation and your situation changes. Now, you know, uh, he's waiting to visit us. Would be interesting if he visited some of us these four days, wouldn't it? When he visited Sarah, history had to be rewritten. When he visited Moses, history had to be rewritten. And there'll be a story of what he can do. I'd never preached a sermon on angels. One day I decided I ought to preach a sermon on angels, and I read Peter Berger's little book on angels. So as I worked on it, I thought, you know, it must have been an interesting experience. When Zechariah was standing in the temple, you remember his last time? In that place where he knew he, he was alone, because it was illegal for anybody else to be there. And as he was performing his functions in total solitude, he knew he wasn't in total solitude and there was somebody there. And he turned in shock. And the guy said, don't be disturbed. Your wife's going to have a son. And Zechariah looked back at him and said, I don't know who you are, but it's obvious you aren't from around here. <laughs> Because if you were from around here, you'd know about my wife. You know how old she is. I didn't marry a, ch a child bride. She's as old as I am. No earthly way that she can ever have a child. The guy says, I understand. I'm not from around here. <laughs> I'm from another world. And when my world that I come from meets yours, the possibilities in your world change.
I don't know about you, but I like that. The Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in the all the earth. You've set it above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, you've perfected power, strength. Weak things, what the world considers weak, are God's opportunity. What is man? Who are you that he should be mindful of you or that he should visit you? 